Please turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. In a few moments, I'm going to read chapter 3, verses 21, all the way through chapter 4, verse 8. I don't start reading yet. Just put your finger right there because we're going to read it in just a second. I want you guys to imagine this. Imagine if somebody came to you and, and they asked you to sum up the whole Bible in about 250 words or less. You know, just a few paragraphs. Just some what the entire Bible is all about. Take all the Bible's rich truths and stories and principles and promises and boil it all down to a nice, concise summary. It's about the equivalent of 19 verses long. And what would you have? What would that look like? I mean, a lot of things might come to your mind. But I believe that you would have something that approximates what we find in the verses I'm about to read. I don't know how you can sum the whole, basically the whole matter of this book down any better than in what we're going to read. There might be some things you can come up with that you think aren't mentioned here, but I'll guarantee you, everything in this book, in one way or another, leads to or is drawn from what we find right here. That's, that's a reality. If you can grasp these 19 verses, you're on your way to grasping the very heart and soul of the message and the meaning of this book. I, I'm not underestimating this at all. If you will understand what is in the portion of Scripture we are just about to read, everything in the Bible makes sense. I mean, the Old Testament comes alive. The Gospels make sense. You find that all the rich teachings of the epistles find their roots in what we are about to read right here. And you know, you master these verses... You've really mastered what redemptive theology is all about. And I, I cannot fully describe to you guys at all how good the news is that is in these verses. This is gospel, folks. There is glory in these words if the truth of them will just impact your. Your understanding. God will give you the eyes to see what's here. Man's only hope lies here. The greatest need of mankind is met here. So, with that introduction, let's read these verses. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested. That statement alone is staggering if we only understand it. Guys, this isn't the first time that it's been dealt with in the book of Romans. 
You remember back in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1? Paul there says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And he says there, it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And he says that the reason he's not ashamed of it is because in it, in the gospel, you have the righteousness of God revealed. He come, now, you know what he does? He then goes for the whole rest of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, and the first half of chapter 3, basically relegating all of humanity under sin. None are righteous. He condemns Jew and Gentile alike. And now that He's made His case that there is universal depravity, that all men are undone in this world, there are none good, not even one. There are none that do good. There are none that are righteous. He's made His case that all men's mouths might be shut and they all might be held accountable to God. And now that He's done that, He comes back to His subject again. And He says, okay, with that little or big aside there, which is no minor matter. Now that I've given you the very reason that a righteousness of God like this is needed, let me come back to my original topic. The righteousness of God has been manifested. There he said revealed. Here he says manifested. And how is it? Apart from the law. Well, immediately, something ought to be in our minds. Well, this is... This is this is not exactly what we would expect to be attached to this. But the reason that this is attached is because he's not specifically talking about an attribute of God. He's talking about something you and I are required to have that He requires of us. And we're going to see in just a second He gives to us. This is not speaking about the characteristic righteousness of God. He is righteous. But that's not what Paul's alluding to here. He's alluding to a righteousness that you better have. That's why he says it's apart from the law, because it's not apart from any of your law keeping that this righteousness of God comes. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. This is talked about in the Old Testament too. It's not something new with Paul. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now notice this word right here. For all who believe. It is a righteousness that is not of God in the sense that it's His attribute or His characteristic that Paul's talking about. It is a righteousness of God that is for those who believe. It is a righteousness that is of God but a righteousness that is given to us. That's important to understand. It's for. And he says, for there is no distinction. What does he mean? There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. This righteousness of God is for both. And it comes the same way. And he'll get to that a little more. For all have sinned. See, there's no distinction of any people types or blood groups or nationalities because we're all in the same camp. There's no distinction in what we're made of, folks. And what we are. 
And this is what we are. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That, that word has the idea of turning away the anger and the wrath and the fury of God. Appeasing God. Satisfying God. We know that Isaiah said that God the Father would look upon Him, look upon His sufferings, and He would be satisfied. As a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. We dealt with this last week, folks. When God justifies a person, it doesn't undo the law. It doesn't overthrow the law. Rather, we uphold the law. It turns us into law keepers. The law is not grievous to us. God writes that law upon our hearts. We do not become lawless when God justifies us. We uphold the law. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Romans 4.1 What then shall we say? Now, Paul's mind goes to Abraham because he wants to prove some things and simply build his case. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as His due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, I know this is a lot of material, but I really can't make an apology for trying to deal with so much. I am in the process of doing an overview of Romans, not a verse-by-verse -verse exposition. Let's face it right at the start. Getting a grasp of this 
will take some work. I'd be lying to you if I told you that this was simple stuff and any little child here should be able to easily understand it. I'm not saying salvation is difficult to understand. I'm saying the ways of God and the mind of God and the purposes of God are very often hard to understand, hard for us to comprehend. And there are several aspects to this that makes it hard to understand. First, there are concepts here. These verses are profound and deep. They are. They really are. And they take the Spirit of God and they take personal effort to understand them. You hear this in Paul's words when he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. To study these versions is to delve into the mind and purposes of God. Folks, that is a formidable task. But there's a second thing that makes this portion of Scripture somewhat of a difficulty. It's the hard words here. Some of the most weighty terms that come out of your Bibles and that have to do with Christianity are found right here in these verses. Such as propitiation, righteousness, faith. I'm not saying these aren't necessarily uncommon words. As much as we use faith, define it. As much as we use the term righteousness, define it. Propitiation is one that takes a bit Anyways, we don't use it today. But you have you have terms here: the glory of God, justified, redemption, works of the law, forgiven. I mean, these are profound terms. Literally, volumes have been written about any one of these words by themselves. And then, third, there's a hard reality. There is the hard reality that man is so. Man-centered. Folks, here's another reason. A far darker reason why we don't easily comprehend what Paul has written here. I want to this. You know, when I was growing up, I had a friend from first grade on. I, he was a friend of mine until I moved down here. And this guy, he and I were friends back as far as first grade. And I cannot remember when his parents got divorced, but they definitely were as far back as I can remember. He grew up living with his brother and his mother in a big house. Father wasn't there. Wasn't in the picture. This guy, as he grew up, and I knew him through the high school years, through the college years, he seemed to live what we might call a charmed life. It always seemed like this guy could walk through fire and, and not get burned. I mean, he did ridiculously foolish things. And that's not to say that sometimes I wasn't doing them with him. But he seemed to, he seemed to try to 
I mean, he literally, he'd go, he drove his car through a downtown mall one time. No streets. It's a downtown mall where, where there's sidewalks 70, 80 miles an hour down those sidewalks. The fact he never killed anybody or he didn't kill himself, it's just amazing. He did ridiculous things. He was wicked. He was sinister. He was sly. It, it seemed like he was constantly getting caught up in one kind of fiasco or debacle after another. And I admit, I was, I was there alongside him a, a number of times. But the thing is, it seemed like I, I always got messed up by it. And he, he was able somehow to walk away from these things unscathed. It seems like things always went his way. He was always one step ahead of harm's way. I guess the world would call a guy like that just very lucky. But one of the things that seemed just extraordinarily unusual about this guy was his mother. And I look back at that woman. My friend... He was in trouble all the time. I, I mean, if it, it was drugs, some kind of criminal thing, getting caught with a girl, messing up in school, I mean, getting apprehended by the police. He even went off to the military and, and ran away from there and got in trouble with them. And I mean, just... And guys, his mother, would come right alongside him, pat him on the back, smile at him, praise him, applaud him, and send him right on his way. It was just incredible the kind of things, if I just went, if I could chronicle for you this guy's life and his mother, that's not to say once in a while she didn't, you know, flare up because she was immediately, but on the part she just, she didn't cause him to suffer any consequences, never punished him, defended him, smashed the car, okay, just give him another, give him another one. I, I mean, I, and I'll tell you, the rest of my friends and I, that's what we wanted. We wanted our parents like that. But folks, what is far, far more heinous in all of this than just some wicked schoolboys wanting indulgent, easygoing parents is that in my natural state and in your natural state, you want a God just like that. You want a God just like my friend's mother. Just like that. We don't only want Him to be like that. We imagine Him to be like that. Folks, we take the glory of the immortal God and exchange it for an image that's just like that. We want a God who thinks little of our sin and thinks a whole lot of us. That's what we want. So we imagine a God who is man-centered. Why? Because we are man-centered. This is the world's view of, way of viewing God and all that God does. It's a mindset that begins 
with the thinking that man is the basic, most real, and essential thing in reality in the midst of all this universe and in the midst of all this world. That's the idea we have. Come on! You were there. I was there. We basically, before any of us were saved, and some of you aren't saved yet, that's how we walk through life. We basically looked at God. I can remember. Yeah, I believed that there was a God. I didn't grow up in atheist. Basically, my apprehension of God, the way I viewed Him, is let me live my life. Let me live all this wild life. Basically, hey, I knew my parents weren't like my friend's mom. But I thought my God was. Because no matter what I did, I thought He just sat up there in heaven and looked down at me and smiled upon me. And basically, that's what man in this world does. And that is the worldly mindset out here that God is just like that. Man is central to everything and God just simply orbits around Him. Man is there. He's got His rights. He's got His wants. He's got His, his life. It's about Him. And He looks to God and expects God is going to bow down to Him and serve all His needs, serve all His rights, serve all His desires. Come on! You were there and you know it. No matter how you lived, you pictured God as just accepting of you. That's how we were. Folks, this is the greatest reason of all that portion of God's Word is difficult for us to understand. Paul is making a case here in these verses that we can't even comprehend with a typical worldly man-centered mindset. We can't even go there. One thing we have to come to grips with, I know this is such a basic statement. It can almost just go over our heads. It is so basic. But the Bible is mainly concerned about God. Wow, how easy that just goes past us. Not only is this book mainly about God, this creation is mainly about God. You are mainly about God. Everything God has fashioned out there is mainly about Him. That isn't to say it can't largely involve you. But every single thing that God does that largely involves you is mainly about Him. He's everywhere in it. He's above it. He's below it. Beneath it. Around it. In everything. And you come to the Bible and it hits a square between the eyes. This book is God-centered. The wrath of God hits us right between the eyes. That something's a little bit amiss from our worldly mentality. The wrath of God. The hell of God. It is like this great big claw that just rips through our self-importance and our man-centeredness. It really does. It, it comes at us. Our sin that we think so lightly of. It shows it to be the most heinous monstrosity in this universe. And folks, it's not because of how it affects man. It's because of how it affects God. And how it affects God's glory. The Bible just literally shreds our self-importance and makes God all-important. 
I know we're not even to our text yet, but this just has to be laid down because if we don't have these things straight, as we go dive into this, you, you come out with wrong ideas. You simply do. Listen, the deepest problem that the death of Jesus Christ was designed to solve is virtually incomprehensible to most people. Because at the heart of it, it wasn't first and foremost about your happiness and about alleviating your suffering. And this is what Paul tells us right here. That brethren, God is at the center. The cross of Jesus Christ is first and foremost about God. God saving men is about God. God devising a way to save men is about God's wisdom. It's all about His honor. It's about His glory, His character, His righteousness, His power, His love, His mercy, His grace. It points there. Brethren, the basic mindset out here that we come across and that's in your heart by nature is that I deserve good from God. We expect God to love. We expect God to be kind. We expect God to smile on us. No matter how we live. No matter how we trample His glory. We expect it. But that's not the framework of the Bible. I'm not saying that that these aren't things that overflow from God. They are. But it's missing certain picture parts of the puzzle. Okay. Here we go. Oh, this was hard for me. So far through Romans, it has just it seemed fairly easy to study through these things. But I just struggled. This is... I mean, what can I say? about such things. I just try to pull them out of here and set them before you. They're so glorious. I mean, as I thought about it, I thought, my words just seem so mundane in light of the truth I'm trying to bring out here. Justification. That's what I'm going to talk about. That's where I want to go. I want you to look here. This brings us to our text. I really want the weight of what is being said here in these verses to sink into our understanding. God is teaching us here about justification. I know maybe some of you don't even recognize what that word is. Hopefully by the end you will. What I really want you to get a grasp of is how God is constantly at the center of this doctrine. Just constantly. He doesn't sit helplessly out there somewhere, way out on the fringes of this thing, This is not about some weak God who sits there just, you know, wringing His hands, wanting us to be saved if we would just let Him. This is a a different picture altogether. Justification by faith is God's salvation. It's His idea. He's the one who put Jesus Christ forth to be a propitiation, to fully drink the cup of His wrath. He did it to vindicate His own name. Now, let's consider eight aspects of justification that flow out of these verses that we read. First, you've got to have your Bibles. You've got to have them open. You've got to be reading with me. First, God justifies us. Okay? That's... That seems pretty basic. Yeah, but get what I'm saying here. 
If I say to you the sentence, God justifies us, that is a sentence. It's got all the, all the needed parts to be one. You have a verb. What is the verb? It is justifies. Now, you also have individuals that are in there. Now, you have first... You know, whenever you have a verb, you have somebody that carries out the action of the verb. If it's an action verb. And then you have individuals upon which that action is carried out. Now, just look, look at this little basic sentence. Who justifies? God. Who is being justified? Right. So, God justifies us. Look at Romans 3.26. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier. That is a title we can give to God. The justifier. We don't justify. We are the justified You guys are looking at me. Okay, brother, we have this. But it's so crucial. I know it's basic. I know it. Okay, we get this. We've understood it. But God is the one who does it. This thing about justification is not something we go around doing to ourselves. It's something that God does. Romans 3.30 Since God is one, He will justify the circumcised by faith and uncircumcised through faith. Romans 4.5 And to the one who does not work but trust Him who justifies the ungodly. We don't do this. It's being done to us. He's the one that acts. We're the ones being acted upon. This is the way salvation is. It is finally and decisively an act of God the Father. That's the point. It's Him. Do you see some centrality to Him in justification? He does it. He can't be more central than that. Okay? Second thing. God justifies sinners. But see, we have come to expect that. If we really come to the Scriptures with a God-word, biblical mindset, that statement alone is staggering. In fact, just given what, what is revealed about God in the Scriptures, to hear that statement would create a problem in our minds. Which it does create, which Paul deals with. And we'll get to that. But let's hit that point. God justifies sinners. Look at Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, guys, we love to memorize the first part of this. Romans 3, 23. Just about everybody knows it. Maybe you know the King James Version, but you tend to memorize it, right? What, what does Romans 3.23 say? Now, don't look at your Bibles. Just tell me. We all know it. But that's not all that's being said here. And are justified. 
this says that if any are justified by grace as a gift, they must come from a certain pool of humanity. What pool is that? It's the pool of all. And what is it that's true about all? All are sinners. Now listen to me. If any people in this world are going to be justified, what pool of people do they have to come from? Sinners. God justifies sinners. Look over at Romans 4, 5. A tremendous word here. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just look at those three words. Justifies the ungodly. It's not the good God justifies, but who? So if any are justified, what do we know of a certainty is true about them? They're sinners. They're ungodly. The point is this. Oh, listen to this. It is profound. The point of all of this is that sin and ungodliness never, 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 ever keep an individual from being right with God. That, that's enough to make us all jump right out of our seats right now and scream hallelujah. That is phenomenal truth. It is so weighty. Third, God justifying sinners is God passing over the sinner's sin. Some of you still might not be ready to get all excited about this. It might be because you really don't understand what justification is all about. Well, right here we begin to get to the heart of it. God justifying sinners is God passing over the sinner's sins. Look at Romans 3.25. I'm going to go part way into this and just read a little bit but because there's a whole argument being laid out here. But in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. Former here doesn't mean just the sinners of a sinner's past. Former here means that God in former times forgave all the sins of His people. You take a David, in former time, all of his sins pardoned, forgiven, passed over. Abraham, Moses, Noah, Joseph, Isaac. The list goes on and on and on and on. The harlot Rahab. On and on. God passing over sins. Do you know that when God's people were in Israel and He told them, take a lamb Take a male lamb, take a male lamb without blemish, without spot, without defect, and slaughter that lamb and eat it and put its blood around the doorpost. He said, my death angel is going to come and when he sees the blood, he's going to pass over. Do you know what justification is all about? It's about God 
passing over sins. This, folks, in Jesus Christ is the true Passover. God literally looks at the sinner. They're not good. They are ungodly. They are sinners. They have a weight, massive weight of sin on their shoulders. And God passes over them. just passes over them. He literally passes over them as if they never happened. Brethren, brings me to the fourth thing. Justification involves forgiveness. Look at Romans 4, 5 through 8. Go to Romans 4, verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but trust him who justifies the ungodly. He's going to tell us a little bit about this. His faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And now here he quotes David. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count His sin. Brethren, glory in these three phrases. Lawless deeds forgiven. Sins are covered. Lord will not count His sin. My sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to that cross, folks. I don't bear it anymore. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. All of it. My sins are covered. They're forgiven. They're cast away. They're behind His back. As far as the east is from the west, He doesn't bring them into remembrance. They're gone. That's what justification is all about. Fifth, justification involves God counting us righteous. Look at Romans 4, 6. David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Now, guys, get this straight in your mind. Justification is not about God actually, in a practical way, making you righteous on the inside. He does that. It's just not called justification. It's got another word. Justification is not about God changing you in here. It's about counting. Did you see the word? Look, if you didn't get it, it doesn't say He makes us righteous. It says He counts righteous. That word count, it's an accounting term. Folks, this is a bookkeeping type of term. This is an idea of a legal declaration. A forensic declaration. You guys, justifying is something a judge does. Just think about that. What is the opposite of justify? Condemn. Now listen, when a, when a judge read sentence. And the sentence is the condemnation of the person that is put on trial. 
The condemnation is declaring him guilty, reading the sentence, the punishment against the man. But the condemnation never makes him guilty. He is guilty. The condemnation is simply a statement of judgment about what is true of that person. (coughs) Justification on the other side, it's the same thing in the positive sense. When we are justified, it doesn't mean that we are being made like Christ. Although we are, again, that's another, another term. Justification is when God looks at a person. This is the phenomenal thing. He looks at a person who has actually committed sin and he reads the verdict not guilty. And you know how he does it? Because he counts us righteous. This goes back right to the beginning, folks. The righteousness of God. For for those who have faith in Jesus Christ, not by my works, not by my efforts, not by my law-keeping. God comes based on the merits of Jesus Christ and counts me perfect, righteous. Wow. Sixth, justification is by His grace as a gift. Romans 3.24 Sinners are justified. I add sinners there because it comes from Romans 3.23, but sinners are justified by His grace as a gift. Now, guys, look at that. Do you see those three little words, as a gift? The New King James, the King James Bible, translates gift more literally as freely. We are freely justified. Well, take that little word freely or gift as it's found in our ESV and you start looking through the rest of the Bible and find out where that word shows up. You know what? You can go right over to John 15. And do you know where that word is used? They hated Jesus Christ without a cause. Without a cause. Now, read that word like that right here. You are justified by His grace without a cause. You ask me, why did He save me? There's no cause. Not in you. There's none. It's a gift. It was given not because you deserve it. Oh, there is a cause. But it's found in His love, not in you. He loved. But even in His love, why He chooses some and passes over others? Who can say? Who can say? Next, justification is by faith. Oh, folks, Romans 3.22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Romans 3.25, to be received by faith. Romans 3.26, the justifier of the one who has faith. Romans 3.28, one is justified by faith. Romans 3.30, he will justify the circumcised by faith, the uncircumcised 
through faith. Abraham, or Romans 4.3, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Romans 4.5, and to the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. How do I get this justification? How do you get this justification? How can a sinner be justified? Fellow sinner, you who are guilty of offending God, times you can't even number, and you sit on death row right now, sentence has been weighed against you. If you do not believe right now, the judgment of God stands against you now. The wrath of God is being revealed already. John 3.36 says, if you don't believe, if you're not obeying, the wrath of God abides on you already, folks. It's on you now. You are currently a child of wrath. If you're in there, basically locked up in your cell on death row, simply waiting your execution, and you want to know, how can I escape this? How can I be right with God? How can I get out of this? How can a man be justified? How can I be set right with God with so many sins to my account? By faith, you can be counted righteous. That's the Gospel. Or part of it. Or a little bit more. Not a minor matter that we have to get to. The last thing that I would say, number eight, before we hit on our problem here, is justification excludes boasting. See that in Romans 3.27? Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Justification excludes boasting. Why? Why does it? Because justification is by faith. And faith excludes boasting. Why? Why does faith exclude boasting? It's a gift. It's a gift. It's outside of us. Faith looks outside of you. For one, God gives that faith as a gift. But for number two, the faith itself is a constant looking out and trusting another one. Who does it say we're supposed to trust? The one who justifies the ungodly. And by that faith, we are counted righteous. Faith is always looking away from me, out to God, out to what it was accomplished in Jesus Christ. Well, that brings me now to a massive, massive problem. <clears throat> Exodus 23.7 You don't have to turn there. For the sake of time, just, I'll read it to you. God says this, I will not acquit the wicked. When God counts a sinner righteous, He is acquitting the wicked. That's a problem. He says I won't do it and He does it. There is conflict there, folks. Let me read another verse to you. <clears throat> Nahum 1.3 the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Justification is God clearing the guilty. Let me read another one. Proverbs 24.24 He who says to the wicked, you are righteous, him the people will curse. God has declared me 
righteous. If I, after this message is over, sat down with you and told you all the things I've done in my life, you would say you are not righteous. You are a wicked person. God has declared me righteous. It says right here, he who says to the wicked, that's me. You are righteous. That's what God did to me. Him the people will curse. Nations will abhor Him. Let me give you another one. Proverbs 17.15 He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Hear that again. He who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. He who justifies the ungodly is what Romans 4 or 5 calls him. He who justifies the ungodly. Wait, here it says, He who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Folks, this creates a massive problem in Scripture. Massive. And, and, the typical individual off of, off the street out here doesn't see it as a problem. Because they expect it. God's supposed to love us. In fact, if He didn't, if He wasn't kind to us, we'd be shocked. After all, you know, the God of my imagination is just, he's, He caters to me. Of course He'd send His Son to die for me. That's the way I view Him. He'll do anything for me. No matter what I do. No matter how I act. Oh no, folks. This... You know how we look at people? You know how we look at judges who sit on the bench and acquit the wicked? You know, we have a lot of judges in the land like that right now. I don't think highly of them. Do you? I don't look at them and say, oh, they're so like God. They're just godly people. You know what? They're unrighteous. They're wicked. Because there's a problem. Our moral sensitivities rise up when people who are wicked and people who are done bad are just let go. There's something that strikes us in all that as wrong. Folks, the great question of the ages is not how God can destroy Pharaoh. It is not how God can throw Judas into his own place in the pit. That is not the great question of the ages. The great question of the ages is how God comes alongside a man who is a murdering, fornicating David and delight in him and love him. That is the question. That is the question. How can God come alongside a Saul of Tarsus, a man who despised Christ, who persecuted Christians, and smile upon Him and accept Him. How is that possible? Let me give you guys an example of this. God sends Nathan the prophet to David with these words in 2 Samuel 12, 9 and 10. Why have you despised the Word of the Lord? What did David do? He saw a woman who he thought was very beautiful, very attractive, had her brought over to his house, slept with her, and then had her husband killed. Adultery and murder. 
God sends the prophet Nathan to him. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? Now stop right there. Numbers 15, 30 and 31 says the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native, a sojourner, reviles the Lord and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandments. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. David did exactly what it says God would cut people off for and leave their sin on their own head for. He has despised the word of the Lord. Nathan goes on to say, to do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And then we have this. In 2 Samuel 12:13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now listen to what Nathan says to David. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. David's sin is passed over. Why is that a problem? Folks, do you see what's happened here? God says to David, why have you despised me? Every time man sins, what does he do? He despises God. Did you remember what Romans 3.23 says? All have sinned and do what? They fall short of God's glory. Every time we sin, we despise God. It's trampling His glory. It's belittling His honor. It's trouncing upon His name. And when God just simply passes over sin, what does it look like God's saying? It just doesn't matter. It's like my friend's mom. And what he says... What God is saying, if He does that, is my glory doesn't matter, my honor doesn't matter, my name doesn't matter, and if God did that, He'd be unrighteous and we'd all be without hope. We could throw this whole book right out the window. Folks, that is the issue with sin. It's despising God and every time God passes over sin, which is despising God and attacking His glory, God seems to be supporting the trampling of His glory. He just passes over it. We live our lives thinking so very highly of ourselves. We trample His name and we just view God like my friend's mom doesn't matter. doesn't matter. None of it matters. Folks, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Why? Because God thinks so little of His own glory? 
I'll tell you what, His wrath rains down upon the sons of men because they suppress His glory and they refuse to honor Him and give Him thanks. This is why Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God saw His glory being despised by sinners. He saw His honor belittled. And instead of turning to you and to me and slaying us on the spot, damning our souls forever, He set forward His Son to be a propitiation. And He slayed the Son of God. Oh, folks, you better believe when David sinned, that sin he committed and despised God, God's fury was enraged. He didn't pass over David's sin because he accounted it a small thing. He counted it an astronomical thing. And his wrath was stirred greatly. But Jesus Christ is called the propitiation. He drank the cup of God's wrath empty for His people, for everyone who would believe on Him. That is what redemption is all about. It has to do with paying a price. Every time David sinned, Moses sinned, Abraham sinned, you or I sinned, there is a price. There is wrath that is stored up against us. We owe God a debt we cannot pay. And Christ paid it with His blood. Brethren, this is our hope. This is the best news in the world for us of us who feel our guilt before God and know that our righteousness is wholly inadequate before God. Can't win His favor. That's why Paul spent such a vast part of this letter to try to convince us that we're sinful. So that when he would get to this, we would have our mouths shut, not be ready to boast, sit back, feel ourselves condemned, and have this gift of righteousness set before us. A righteousness by which I can be counted perfect through the merits, through the life and death of Jesus Christ. Accepted. Entirely accepted. All my sin covered over. All of it passed over. All of it, folks. My sins have been nailed up there to that cross. I don't bear them anymore. Jesus Christ bore them on that cross. What these verses have to say to us are more important for your life than what 10,000 books that men write meant to solve our problems can ever address, can ever be helpful for. Folks, these are the rock bottom truths that you and I need to hang on to as we seek to live out this life. Your need isn't some new Christian self-help book. Here in Romans is the truth that will bear you up in the battle. You will sin. You will fail. You will fall. You will err. I'm talking you Christians. You're going to do that. You will face temptations. And you will fall into that rut where you do things that you don't want to do and the things you don't want to do are the things you find yourself doing. You will find yourself there. And Satan will be there at your ear. Do you think you can go to Christ with all this defilement on you? He wants nothing to do with 
You can look at Satan and say, you're right. I'm defiled. But I didn't come to Christ in the beginning on my own merits. And I don't come to Him now. It's on the merits of Jesus Christ alone. The justification is found in Him. Romans 8.33 Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justified. I didn't justify me. Satan, He did. He did. Why? Oh, folks. Look to the cross. There you find the full expression of God's hatred for sin. There you find the full, the full value of the glory of God put on display of us and how God esteems His glory. And there you find the love of God set forth before us. All in these. Oh, folks. Let these verses permeate your thinking. Many professing Christians, I'll tell you what, these truths will pull you through a hundred different crises in your life. There are a lot of people who are beat down, they are tread down, they are depressed, they are discouraged Christians. It's because they don't hold on to these truths. Like my little girl would hold on to me if a big old vicious dog's bearing down on them. Folks, I know it's hard to get all the fullness. I can't do it. I can't even begin to touch all the fullness of these verses. Our life, our hope, our all is in Christ. This is what He accomplished for us. This is the heart of this book. You boil it down, there's no more glorious truth in all of God's Word towards mankind than what you find in these verses. Boy, to every person sitting here, this, this, this is your hope. This is life. Oh, Lord. Setting Your Son forth as a propitiation. His very worth gives expression to the worth of Your glory in the fact You would set Him forth and slay the Son of God in the stead of sinners, that You might pass over our sin and give unto us the righteousness of God for those that will believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, You have set some of us free. There are some in this room who are justified. We praise You for this. There are some of us, Lord, in this room who are not justified. And I pray that they would find in this that to which their faith can cling hold of. Lay hold of. Lord, take this truth and transform our city, Lord. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You're dismissed. You can stand up, brother.